My philosophy about lighting design is very much about architectural psychology. Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbell. And that's right, folks, the year, it's over. So why not take a look back at it all? All the amazing people we got to talk to this year, all the amazing conversations, all the amazing inspiration that we had. We figured we'd take a look at the top five podcasts. Might not surprise you, but the top five podcasts, they're square in the bullseye of the trends in lighting design and of course, technology. We'll reveal uh, snippets, some of our favorite highlights from each one of these episodes. So stick around. Enjoy this uh, abbreviated version of the pulse of the lighting industry right now. First up, it was a conversation about what is lighting design? What does lighting design need in 2022? Uh, We recorded this in Boston with Lab Partners in Canon and our very own Sarah Schonauer. And the first question that I asked them all, just to remind us, is what is lighting design? To me, helping my clients, which are happen to generally be trained similarly to me, is really helping them sort of craft the luminous experience of the interiors and exteriors, urban spaces, whatever, and figuring out fixture locations, hardware specs, all that is sort of subsumed in service of that. Um, so some of the folks at LAM often use the, the concept of like the paintbrush and the paints are the different pieces of lighting hardware and that we're creating paintings or tapestries or art installations in architectural space. I mean, I think it always comes back to the people, right? Who are the people going to be using the space? How can the lighting benefit them? You know, how can it actually help them heal or um, how can it help them just feel better, right? It's, I think you always have to come back to the people and then the additional things like the fixtures. Yes, you have to have quality products, but you have to, you know, it's more about that experience. Yeah, I think that, you know, lighting designers are the kind of deliverers of perception, at least for sighted people, although we're learning that light obviously has some impact on things that are outside of the vision spectrum as well. And lighting designers make it their business to get into the details about those paintbrushes and the canvases that you're painting on, you know, and what matters in terms of really creating an experience. And I think lighting designers gift is being able to help with that interpretation after kicking it off and being inspired we moved through the conversation a little bit and here's where we picked up i think the first question is what is the purpose of a model it just so happens that i put together a lecture on this exact topic for wentworth a couple weeks ago so i have a lot to say so the you know the the core purpose of a model is to represent something that is real in a more simplified version that we can use it to make predictions or come up with methods for anticipating what the reality is going to be. So if the goal of the model is primarily to provide illuminance levels at task plane, radiosity does a pretty good job of that with electric lighting. But that's not what we do. That is what an electrical engineer does to verify that they're getting their emergency calcs mm-hmm. met or that you're like meeting, you know, meet, checking the box. What we do is we provide exquisite luminous environments, right? And to that end, I strongly believe that a visual program that allows us to operate on the lighting in real time is the only path forward for lighting design in the digital realm. And to that end, People coming into the field need to have a basic understanding of what it means to produce a rendering, at least the basics of how those rendering algorithms work so that you understand what's bullshit and what's not. And sort of a facility in moving between, you know, a hand sketch and a fully rendered photometrically accurate visualization that can convey to a client not what they want it to be, but what it actually is. One of the big things we find is our clients will sell to their client an image of what they want the thing to look like that is totally not realistic. (laughs) Studio lights. (laughs) And then we come back and we render it for real. And then they're pissed off that the lighting solution didn't work how they intended. And it's like, well, this is how we thought it was going to be. And it is a spitting image of what what it looks like in reality. It's definitely an issue. And trying to get in the sequence at the right time yeah. to, to get in front of those and go, are you noticing that there aren't any shadows? Are you noticing that the light's coming from magical location? Like, this is not real. You know, and finally, after all of that insight, you know, the final question was, tell me where the sweet spot is for the tools that help designers today 
in the real world? Like, what applications are you using? We do a lot of our own internal training because there isn't a lot of technical support for some of this stuff. I mean, the software companies will provide some support, but certainly within the lighting industry, there's not a lot. We'll get onto the IES file uh, soapbox in a minute, but a lot more companies are providing Revit families for their fixtures. We don't use them. Nope. <laughs> we make all our own families internally because those families don't really provide us much help. And frankly, the only time you really want a, a custom family is if you like selecting some fancy decorative fixture that's going to be very visible in the space that the architect really wants to have in the model for whatever reason. Yep. But by and large, you don't need to have those. Where it would be helpful is to have more 3DS models. And a couple companies do that. Um, we can certainly bring in from uh, Revit families, import those in, but more digital geometry of the fixtures in ways that sort of can move around and do anything that the fixture can in reality can be could be helpful it goes without saying lighting design is the heartbeat of our industry thanks again to dan sarah and kate it was great to chat with you guys our second most listened to episode came in the theme of the role that technology really plays in advancing the lighting industry. Uh, this was with a guy named Paul Boken. If you haven't met Paul, you're going to start to hear more about him. Paul's a lighting designer, and he started a platform called Sorcery with a few of his peers, both on the design and agent side. And he recently actually just retired uh, his lighting design career to focus on Sorcery full-time. It's pretty cool. We chatted a little bit more about cloud computing, how that can really change the way the industry communicates and how it shares information. It's uh, really not unlike what Spotify has done to the entire music industry. Sorcery, it's up and coming. And if you haven't checked it out, check it out. But here's what Paul had to say. As I developed in the industry and as our team grew, I, I realized that the communication around light, how we communicate with our clients, how we coordinate lighting, and how we communicate with our supply chain was completely broken. And I, and I just, it was starting to like make us not love our jobs. Like the politics around packaging and products and pricing, lack of transparency was really starting to um, affect how much we enjoyed our, our, our work. And, and I found that we spent, we're starting to spend as a team and, and it became more apparent as we kind of went into this remote working environment where you could monitor the communication a little more amongst the team because it was happening in say a, a you know a slack channel or a zoom channel and you could see the kind of questions that are coming up all the time what product works for this who does this i'm having issues with this on a project or you know so and so is complaining because they can't bid the job because they don't have this type and i need you know the, the communication wasn't about design it was all about procurement it was all about like how to how to get the light to site right it was really and what light to use and I'm, I'm thinking it's got to be a better way so back to the cloud computing you know I, I took my passion for technology and and at that time when we had a little more time to think I think at least when we locked down really started to think about how do you change how an industry communicates how do you make it more efficient and I think if you look at some of the existing models out there in the in the cloud which are you know say social platforms content platforms there's this idea that if you if you build people a community really that empowers everyone to create and share uh, build an online community that empowers everyone to create and share, you'll change how an industry communicates. Give me an example. An example of, of that would be, I guess, let's look at more mature markets that, that have, have already been disrupted from, this, from the standpoint of content sharing. So let's look at music and video. Like you, you no longer go to a, a musician's website to consume content. You don't go to a movie producer's website to view their movies or even a, a website of like a, a, a network. You go to content platforms. And I think, and even if you look at other things like YouTube, Spotify, which are also, con you know, these are all content platforms. And you look how people share information in this world of music and, and video. And you think that's really interesting. And it's so efficient. It's so empowering. It gives everyone the power to be a content creator. Even if you're just creating playlists on Spotify, sharing with your friends. You know, actually, I, I have a bunch of my friends. We're all music nuts. We make collaborative playlists on Spotify mm -hmm. on certain topics. And I'm thinking like, so we really started to think, how can we take this idea of just sharing content and these content platforms, show social networks, some of these things which are, are in some cases social networks, actually there's a lot of uh, bad things about how, how, how those platforms work in some ways, but how can you take all the good stuff? Like take the poor part about empowering, sharing content um, and build something. 
So, so we started to really think about it. And like a few of us got together and started experimenting with this a little bit. Like what happens if a light fixture is like a song or a clip on YouTube? And what happens if you could share that information amongst an industry like you do on Spotify, Apple iTunes, on YouTube, whatever, right? So there's something interesting about these content platforms, but if we move away from like the Spotify, and this will come together to talk about this other project, it'll all come together in a minute. But when you think about Spotify, Apple Music, there's also something about those that it, they're not necessarily a social platform and that the content that's on them isn't necessarily easy to post. Like you can't go and put your song up on Spotify easily as just anyone, right? Like I'm sure you put your content on Spotify, but you have to have a certain creator account. There's a whole process to it, right? But then you start thinking about content platforms like YouTube, that's super accessible. You sign up, you can get on there, you can put a video on that YouTube channel and publish it and get it out to your people, you know, whoever you're trying to communicate, immediately. Um, so when we think about content platforms that might transform how an industry like ours communicates, it also has to be very accessible like that. Like just easily create a platform that someone can go on, post lighting fixtures, let's say, share it with their clients, whether it's an agent sharing it with their lighting designers in the market, or it's a manufacturer sharing it with their agents who share with their lighting designers, or a manufacturer sharing direct. I think a platform like this will remove all the friction in all that, and, and you'll start to see it evolve naturally. As we dove into the conversation, we talked about the nature and the evolution of technology and how tools like Sorcery really are empowering designers and their partners to optimize their workflows. It's important that we have more time in the day, yet we always have less of it. Here's a little bit more about Paul's thoughts on that. It's so true, you know, that we the way we communicate is still in these separate silos that, that we, all, we sometimes link, you know, with an email, let's say. But an email could also be a fax machine, just a faster way. Email is a really bad technology. It's, you ter know? it's yeah, terrible. It's a terrible technology. No, and everybody hates email. Yeah, everybody yeah. hates email. I love that everyone hates email. Me too. Um, because that means it'll hopefully people will be motivated to change their workflows to get rid of it. But I think, yeah, the, ne the next industrial revolution is really centered around technology that creates uh, like workflows in industries that are 10 times more efficient and productive. And I think that platforms that really can take those communities, like we have a, an amazing lighting community and platforms that can leverage that community and, and can empower everyone to create and share structured information, I would say, not say unstructured, like, you know, social platforms like LinkedIn, you're largely sharing very unstructured kind of images, text. But if you can create those kind of communities and platforms that share structured information, like light fixture information, you can create these frictionless communication environments where everything is in one spot, all the communication around an, an element is in one spot, which will create workflows that are 10 times more efficient and more accurate. Just one moment on like this, this idea of this like digital twin, you know, like this idea if you can create, if the digital representation of a light fixture from the moment that you choose to use it right through to the moment that you get it to site is all managed in a singular platform, it creates this like digital signature of the fixture that has all the communication, the pricing information, it becomes so important. It's almost, it's as important as a physical downlight, say, that you put up in the ceiling in the end, that digital signature of it, it's connected to BIM, et cetera. And what may, what's cool about that is that it makes it so important that people don't mess with it. Like substituting it or changing it as an example, swapping it out for something cheaper or swapping it out for, for uh, something that makes you more money if in the case of uh, the supply chain, mm -hmm. usually um, increases profit margin. Is this preposterous as going into the building and stealing it, at, stealing the actual fixture out of the ceiling and swapping it because the digital imprint of it becomes so important. So if we think about, you know, just going back to this idea of, of uh, information, easily sharing information, creating a more transparent process is, is really at the core of, of, of how we're going to improve and, and revolutionize our industry. Like my, my team, we use a product called Asana for all our task management and project management. And we don't just use it, we use it. Everything is in there. So, and we always, we already had Zoom going before as well um, for keeping track of just like communication to try to not use email. But, and that honestly inspired this concept and this kind of this cool little tech project that I was, that we started brewing up. Um, realizing that if we wanted to create this new environment to more efficiently share communication, create more efficient connections, the, the solution isn't just reforming the process. The solution needs a tool. And the, we don't have that tool in our industry right now. It, it was became clear. It's not just about changing how we work 
and trying to leverage the tools that exist. The fact is there is no tool. There is no tool that allows you to both have this kind of cool creative conversation about light fixtures and, and, and also allows you to connect with your specifiers if you're a manufacturer or an agent, show them the light fixtures that are available, show them the products that are available, having them to be able to, you know, engage with them that way. And then those people be able to collect that information, you know, think like Pinterest and Spotify, like we talked about. But then on the back end side of that, for this really to work, there has to be this whole other tool that's also leveraging the highest level of cloud computing technology, which is you know, sharing technical information like project schedules. We also have to take the project schedule out of Excel or Word and put it in the cloud and connect it to this Pinterest library, that this, this social community that we're creating. Um, and that's where we kind of developed this technology. And, you know, we called it sorcery, which is, we think is kind of a cool name. It's like sorcering, but it's magic. You know, there's a bit of a, a wordplay there, which is exactly that. It's leveraging everything we know about, say, what I would call content platforms and open content platforms, you know, like the YouTube more so than the, and Spotify or Pinterest, allowing people to easily just put content and share it with people. Like, and don't send an email. Like all we want, we want to replace email too, right? We don't want when an agent sends me a list or a manufacturer of all their new products in an email. I'm like, that is gone. I have no way of figuring out where to put that, sort it. So, so let me, let me yeah. get this straight. You've got, as a lighting designer, you've got a few things that you're trying to do. You're trying to optimize your ability to manage a project internally with your team. Yep. You're trying to generate a set of documents. Yep. You're trying to attach a value to all of that, which is the price of that design. And at the same time, you also want to continue to learn about what's new out there. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are four things, I'll call them problems. Yeah. That you need solutions to. Exactly. And historically, there's a solution to each one of those problems individually. Yes. Whether it's a direct relationship with someone, whether it's time in your planner yeah. or your or your scheduling book yeah. to, to figure all that stuff out. What's your biggest problem as a designer right now? I'm sure your your fees are going up 300% right now, aren't they? <laughs> no. No. Your fees <laughs> yeah. are right where they're at. And you're being yeah. asked to do more than to ever do before. do more, yeah. Lighting is now a digital technology. Exactly. What you have it's to provide, complicated. what you have to provide in terms of your documentation mm -hmm. is also substantially more. Yeah. Yet your fees are maybe up 10% or yeah. 20%, yeah. not 300%, yeah. but the workload is there. So yeah. the answer is let's smash it all together. Let's talk about sorcery. I know, mm -hmm. you know, we, we've been hinting at it a little bit here and what's, what's beautiful about sorcery is this is a, a brainchild of the pandemic but it is built by a collective genius of people across every part of this channel, this problem or this solution that we're talking about. You all have lighting designers, you have reps and you have distributors involved mm -hmm. in saying, Hey, we all hate email and yeah. we all want to work more efficiently together. Break it down for me. What are you guys yeah. doing with sorcery today? Yeah. So we've, right, you're right. We've danced around it, but to put it all together, you know, we've been talking about the content platform, you know, that, that aspect of it. We've then talked about this ability to, you know, consume content, curate content into playlists, essentially, or collections and, and maintain collections with your agents of fixtures, but also maintain them internally. Like we have collections internally, and we were talking about this earlier, about mocking stuff up. And we'll have like a collection of cove lights and downlights that we've collaborated on our agents with to build. And it literally says in the description, if you have not used this or touched it or seen it installed, it does not belong in here. So it's given us the ability to create this organizational memory and, and in this create this like little internal community amongst our designers to collaborate over the fixtures we use and like share them amongst each other. No more of this, like asking the question in our, in our zoom channel, like, uh, have you seen this down? I'm looking for a track head that's RGBW, you know, and it has like adjustable optics, you know, it's like, why do we ask the same question a hundred times? Let's record it. Let's put it in a collection, sh sh save it in a place. And then let's take those collections and what Sorcery does is allows you to take all that collected content just like you think about your when you open up Spotify and you see your playlists, your iTunes playlists and, and all that. And then literally import it into project schedules. So let's take the project schedule from Excel. Let's put it in the same platform and allow you to then build your product schedules from those curated libraries and from all that organizational memory or IP you develop over time. Like you put a downlight in you realize that downlight needs to have a certain optic and a certain trim type for it to look just beautiful and just right, right? Well, how do you record that? Now we keep track of that, put it in our libraries, so the next time we drag and drop into schedule, that information's there. So it's this crowdsourced library 
that we contribute to internally, but also our agents help us. They can add pricing to that for us. We can invite them into collections. But, you know, you can go into the magic of how will this fix pricing? How will this fix packaging, right? How will this fix this and that and that? And you could get into how it does. But but, but what, what it does is it collect, connects everyone. It creates a more efficient managed process, allows us to share information more fluidly. And what will happen naturally is first off, a managed process, um, you know, I think the lighting package will become more sacred harder to mess with when it's in a platform like this. And when it's in a platform like this, like we use the same technology. We talked a lot about Spotify, YouTube, et cetera, but the actual sharing technology we're using is same as Google Docs. Like it uses, leverages the most kind of advanced sharing platforms, allowing you to create both private collections and private content, let's say, both project schedules and collections of fixtures and share it to your client directly it control exactly what they see. Maybe they don't need to see the budget information right away. Maybe they you can hide this fixture type. So it uses all those technologies and all these different roles. We have like four different roles in the platform, you know, viewers, collaborators, editors, creators. And every project, every piece of content you create, you can assign, share and assign those people different roles. They see different information. And that's all just leveraging technology that's already out there. It's like you're, we're standing on the shoulders of giants in a way, like Amazon, AWS platforms, like cloud platforms. Google Cloud platforms, um, you know, they've paved the way for for people like us, lighting designers and people who just have a bit of uh, passion and want to solve a problem to actually build platforms like this. Yes. Like it's like it's democratized software. Like we can go out there and actually build like, so we can create something that's made by us, not something that's made by a software company and shove down our throats like Autodesk or something like that or BIM, you know, the way that works isn't really intuitive. We've had to change our workflows to match what Autodesk wanted us to do. But now with this new, the new world we live in, we can actually build something that's really meaningful for us. At the end of our conversation, Paul summed it up in a beautiful way. He reminded me about the end goal. It's having happy clients, making sure that they're empowered and let them know that they can collaborate throughout the process. It was important that we took a moment to recognize that. It's all about, as a lighting designer, we also want to improve our digital experience with our clients, right? They should be able to see the light fixtures that we're specifying in two clicks anywhere in the world from any device. And they should be able to comment on that. No, I don't like that. No, it should be black. The trim should be black, not white, right? Easily. Right. Just just forget like trying to figure out where's the PDF they sent me a month ago. Is this the most current? I guarantee you it's not the most current. <laughs> if it's a PDF that you found, you know, in your inbox, that's more than a week old. Something's changed. So how do you create this single source of information that are even our clients love it? And it's all about trying to make our job fun again. Honestly, like that's what it was. Let's make a managed process that allows us to work from wherever we want to is more transparent so we can just like. Instead of spending 75% coordinating the package or 70% and 30% in design, let's spend 70% on the design and the collaboration and only 30% managing the supply chain. That's my, that's the dream, I guess. I, I love what you said. It's about Technology is a force in the world we live in. And Paul did an awesome job, not only summarizing that, but giving us a little sneak peek behind the curtain of how it's actually being implemented in this industry. Talk about a subject matter expert. He literally is running sorcery full time now. And I would really encourage you to reach out to him just to learn more about his way of thinking and maybe apply that to your business in one way, shape, or form. Our number three episode of the year, well, it brought us back to the idea of a panel because when we bring many voices together, uh, it really elevates a conversation. And this was with a powerhouse of lighting designers from uh, a small firm that you may have heard of. It's called Stantec. As you know, Stantec's been acquiring a lot of businesses over the last decade. And uh, this was with a trio of lighting designers led by Rachel Fitzgerald, who is leading the lighting design charge for Stantec right now. My first question to them was, tell me what's going on in the industry when it comes to well. I wanted to dive into the well building system. Version 2 is out. Uh, they're super well version. Rachel actually sits on the committee and helped write some of this and advise on it. So they let us know what was going on. I think as we've seen for a little while, the trend is do what's better for the environment and better for the people. So, you know, we've seen a growth over the past decade or more in regards to things like lead and lead is a requirement and sustainability metrics. But more recently over the past few years, we've seen a huge uptick in, for better or for worse, some people don't like this term, but human centric 
solutions and really focusing on well-being in our design solutions. And so from what I see as trends in both the broader design and construction industry, but also specifically relative to lighting, I think there's a continued focus on those kind of two qualifications of doing design that is good for the environment and good for the people. What do you think, Jessica? How would you add to that? I would definitely say it's that focus on the human perspective in the built environment. I think that clients are curious about it. I think that they enjoy hearing about, you know, with new technology and other things that we have, hearing that from us as the experts and just interested in bringing that into their spaces. I think definitely the human perspective in well-being is that's what's important. Allison, do you think that when you think about the curiosity and the human perspective of it, it's giving us an opportunity in the lighting industry to maybe shift people's thinking to understand how light has a stronger impact on things? Absolutely. I also think a lot of people talk to me about, you know, lighting casually, like my friends or friends of friends, and they all know that lighting matters, but they don't have a vocabulary to talk about it. Um, And I think that extends to our clients. So I think there's a number of ways that Advocacy for lighting is giving people vocabulary. Educating them is giving them vocabulary to be able to identify you know, what it is that we need to do to make human-centric design better. You bring up a very interesting point, the vocabulary of lighting. I think to us, to most people in the lighting industry, it's second nature. What would you say is the basic lighting vocabulary that naturally, if people know nothing, where do we start with them? As with any design professional, I think we all have experiences of chatting with a client about something and they're using a word over and over again. For example, I I had a client once that would use the word harsh to describe a lot of different facets of lighting. And it took me a very long time to develop that relationship with her to understand what harsh meant. Uh, And it turns out it meant multiple things. It was glare. It was surface brightness. It was even flicker sometimes. (laughs) And so... Uh, developing that vocab really helps us kind of key in on what we're trying to resolve for our clients. Yeah, it's funny because when Sam asked that question, the first thing I thought of is, I think it starts with what the clients don't like. So it often starts with the conversations of, well, my current space is dark or it's uncomfortable or it's uninviting. So it starts with all of these very generic terms like harsh (laughs) and figuring out, okay, what does that mean to the client? And then how do we frame that in metrics and design language that we can use as part of our tools in solving their design needs and present to them good and comfortable lighting? Next, we talked about the well standard itself and why it's a great communication tool for lighting designers and their teammates. This is a way to convey why lighting is important in a whole new sense. Here's what they had to say. So well V2 actually launched in 2020, as you might guess, the second iteration of the well building standard. And I think the really great thing about having a tool like this is it gives designers a toolbox and a common framework. So within that toolbox, we're picking up some of that vocabulary and we're being given a handful of features that are categorized as part of the light concept. And we're able to evaluate design solutions against some of those features and the metrics within them as part of our toolkit in developing designs to be able to substantiate whether aspects of our lighting design solutions based on the current industry standards we have and whether those meet, kind of in air quotes, a well-being component and qualification of those design elements. Talk to me a little bit about some of the features, some of those categories that have been developed that you feel like are pushing this entire conversation in the right direction. One that comes to mind for those that aren't very familiar with well, there are preconditions and there's optimizations. Preconditions are requirements in order to obtain uh, certification. So you have to get those. And then beyond that, there's optimizations, which are additional points where you can pick and choose which ones you use. So to answer your question, Sam, one aspect that I think is great for the advocacy of lighting and developing those standards is one of the preconditions points us back to the IES lighting handbook. And that's something that, you know, some of our clients maybe don't know exists and that helps give us clear direction with them of how to quantify light levels in the space to ensure that the the atmosphere is appropriate for occupants. Uh, But beyond that, 
especially with daylighting, giving occupants access to daylight. That's another one that I think is really critical to human health. The better views that we have and the better daylighting exposure we have, the better we feel during the day. And so well is attempting to take these subjective feelings and things that we talk about and quantifying them. Then we focus on something that in my opinion is probably the most important part of design and that's collaboration. They talked about how well really does bring people together at the table. I would say, you know, so for example, in my office in Seattle, I sit right next to our AV team and we are able to talk about the areas that cross over among our disciplines and projects, but that's not always the case. And I also don't always know what they know and they don't always know what I know or what aspects I might care about, what aspects they might care about. And so, well through their framework has given us basically discussion items point by point of, well, who, who is taking care of this? And I can raise my hand and say, well, I care about that. And somebody else can say, well, I care about that too. And then we're able to have an open discussion about what's the best resolution for the owner and the client. As we came to the end of the conversation, the thing we really dove into was the difference between progress and perfection. When you think about the fact that we're always moving forward, yet we're always evolving. We have to have something that we can kind of standardize on. We have to have something that sets a baseline, but at the same time continues to elevate good design, not to mention good lighting what design. Picking out, that's I think the joy of a system like this is you don't have to check every single box and get every single credit within the light concept. Maybe you only get a handful of them, but that contributes to the bigger picture of the whole. And that doesn't mean that you've failed in doing good design, but maybe there were just other metrics and other limitations that didn't allow you to get those points for those features for that design project. I think the biggest thing out of all of this is you kind of mentioned it when we were talking about the 14%. Whether we can get all of these features to align on a project or not, it's making it an important piece of the conversation. Having a standard like well is causing us to talk about all of these things. And as lighting designers, it's bringing to the forefront these different elements of design that make what we do more complicated in the sense of, in a good way, from a standpoint of, you know, uneducated me, people might just think, oh, there's lights in a room. Great. Check that box. You've got lighting. But no. Does it meet all these other criteria? Is it comfortable? Is it adjustable? Does it have acceptable glare? Is it resulting in good color quality? There's all these conversations behind the scenes, peeling back the layers of the onion that we need to address in doing good design. And the fact that a system like this elevates those conversations and brings them to the forefront and highlights the importance of the details of what we do in lighting design is awesome. You know, in the world of the building space, in the world of the built environment, we obviously want our buildings to be nice. And well is something that is making a lot of progress. And uh, I'll just put my feather in the cap of lighting. Lighting is probably one of the more important parts of a building. And it's cool to see that well is starting to recognize that more and give the design community an opportunity to uh, use it as a voice for the practice of lighting design and everything that we do. Going down the list, if we look at number four, our fourth top episode of the year, it was all about technology. And this was with uh, just an honestly incredible guy. He's also a very good friend of mine. His name is Chris Slaughter. Uh, Chris is just smart. He's a nerd and he has a total passion for being technically accurate, correct, right, and really diving into the problem. He's a lighting futurist almost, right? We talked a lot about some of the exciting technologies that are emerging in this lighting industry. One of the first things we dove into was talking about intelligence, automated intelligence, artificial intelligence, and really just how we can automate design through machine learning. There's a huge emphasis in other industries, mainly in kind of like the Silicon Valley industries to utilize machine learning techniques and what some people may call, you know, artificial intelligence, which that line is not super clear anymore with new types of neural nets. And I'm not 100% sure where machine learning is going to take the construction industry. You know, one of the things that machine learning algorithms are really good at is kind of accomplishing narrow scope tasks. 
But an example of where I have seen machine learning be very successful is on organic structural design. So like Fusion 360 has a plugin that was written that uses machine learning to remove as much material from a structural analysis as possible. You know, like let's say you had a building that was supported with like concrete, right? It would be able to tell you how to pour that concrete with while using the, the minimal amount of concrete on your columns as possible. Like what is the shape that does that? So I think that probably will be utilized in select segments of the industry. And I think because my expertise is in lighting, I can envision places where it will be used in lighting, specifically on the machine learning side. After laying the groundwork for that conversation, you know, we talked about why is this shift happening and how can it help change the nature of coordination and construction not only in lighting, but construction at large. You know, to kind of to discuss like why this is happening, it's because it, it increases productivity and it separates companies' ability to be profitable, or at least in my view, and I, I might be wrong on this, but if you're competing with a bunch of firms to bid for the right to design a project, to be the engineer and the, and the you know, maybe architect, maybe you're all in one shop or maybe you're different, like you still have to be competitive in the marketplace, like on your fee structure, right? So you have to figure out in a broad sense, what is the marketplace of designers and engineers doing, right? And if they're more profitable than you, and by profitable, I mean, I don't mean like, can they make more money, but basically can they be more productive with their fee? Because the fee is gonna be the normalizer. So if you can make that fee go farther and be more productive with the time, and leverage tools like what we've been talking about and certain aspects of automation, that makes you better, right? And so the hope is over time, and this will happen, is over time, like all these firms will get better. And one of the ways that they're getting better is by hiring these what would commonly be non-traditional roles. Like we're talking about BIM managers, software developers. You know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if in like somewhere in the five to like eight to, you know, maybe five to 10 year time frame, people have in construction firms like GCs, they have, and this may already be going on, but they have people that are specialized in augmented reality. So as every day they walk a site with, there's a company up in Boulder called Trimble. They've got a technology called Connect, which plugs into Revit. You take your whole 3D BIM model and it projects it into where you are, right? So you put on a, an augmented reality headset and you can walk the site you can see where stuff is supposed to be. You know, you can see where walls and pipes and conduit and, you know, you can work with these different layers. It depends on what level of detail you've got in your model. But I think duct work is a good one, like where this is supposed to go and look for any interferences or look for where stuff is currently being constructed and look for problem areas that weren't caught in the design process. It's um, literally um, live coordination. Yeah, live coordination. Without actually physically having to realize, oh, my whole crew's here. This is happening. Crap. We're going to have to call someone. We're going to have to file an RFI. We're going to have to bill everyone yeah. for our time. It's just it, So there's a common theme here, which is to stay, in a sense, able to react quickly and calmly. And I emphasize that last part because that doesn't seem to be a, a real you know, common thing in the industry. You know, most is like, oh, this is broken. You know, everybody freaks out. But if you can say, if you can identify problems without freaking out, Right. And we can train ourselves in the industry and, and the partnerships between all the people that are going to be in the construction process to work together to address the problems that are happening. That's going to be a big win for the industry as a whole. And I think things like that augmented reality on site walks is will be very helpful. Then Chris did what he does best. He, he zoomed in. He zoomed in on the lighting industry. Here's what he had to say. Well, I can speak to my own experience. You know, like I joined a rep agency which I'd had some experience in talking to reps working at Acuity and took a chance at doing what I would consider a non-traditional role for a rep and pretty grateful that, you know, I was given that opportunity to see what what you can change. You know, as we sit here and we talk about the construction industry, it's like, yes, you can imagine to the moon, right? But until you put the work in and kind of, you know, somebody's got to roll up the sleeves and and kind of figure it out. Right. So that's one of the things that I've been working on over the past couple of years is, you know, how can we make a, the lighting portion of the rep and the construction and the electrical contractor interaction all the way from the design into procurement better. Right. And so it's hard to fix everything simultaneously. You know, it's not usually how it works. And there's a good quote where it's we overestimate what will happen in two years 
and we underestimate what will happen in 10 years. So if you if you think about that, it's like you're like, oh, well, two years in two years, like everything will be different. It's like, no, that's that's not true. But in 10 years, we tend to think about like things won't have changed as much as maybe you could think. And it it's very different in 10 years. And I just want to pause real quick. If we think about 10 years ago today, that'd be 2012. 2012. Yeah. Smartphones. Infancy. Barely. Yeah. Barely around. Something called Instagram. Forget about it. Yeah. I mean, household words. Yeah, yeah. So it just right. gone. Not even, a, not, not even people had smartphones and they thought it was cool. They could check their email on a mobile device and that was it. Yeah. And I mean, like how ubiquitous are LEDs now in sort of light fixtures or something like that? I mean, and so if you think about the beginning of when LEDs came around to light fixtures, you know, there was kind of this thing about how like LEDs would completely take over everything and kind of the time frame that they thought about was like two to four years. So it's kind of like a, you know, relatively short time frame. And it probably took like six or seven until fluorescents were just dead. Yeah, from right. 2010 when the first stuff came into the marketplace to about 2016. Yeah, something in that time frame, right? So there's like these bullish people that create a lot of, you know, enthusiasm around some new technology and they and then people start to get excited, right? They start to imagine the possibilities. And so their perspective of like how fast things will happen is kind of short. And then all of a sudden like that doesn't really happen because it takes a lot of effort and a lot of people all working in the same direction to make some serious change. But over time people just keep kind of grinding away at stuff and it does kind of change. Anyways, this we're, you know, this is kind of a auxiliary topic, but you know, automated driving is this way too. And the first people thought that automated driving was going to be like figured out and like stuff like that. And there's always people that didn't think it would be figured out in five years. But when we look back across like the lineage of time, you go like, oh, well, it did take 15 or 20 years to get automated driving figured out, but it will be so good that we won't have steering wheels anymore. And I'll also point out just because something gets figured out doesn't mean people are ready for it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the most important things in all of this is the human factor. And whether we like it or not, humans are very predictable, but they're also unpredictable, right? Yeah, yeah, they can be both. At the end of it, it all comes down to value. And we wrapped up debating what parts of lighting design, you know, can and cannot be automated, which should and should not be automated. This is something that is important because obviously the creative mind, the human mind, the mind's eye can do so much for us, but we all know we'd like to clone ourselves some days. If you understand fundamentally what lighting design is, it's almost impossible to automate because there's so many factors yeah. in the design process. Now you can create automated tools to help lighting design go faster. Yes. But you're never going to automate lighting design. You may automate parts of it, like you said, but I don't, but I, the process in general, I think, and, and we talked about why I got into this stuff is because there is a creative psychological and art aspect to lighting design. You know, there's a science too, and, and I get jazzed up about that too, but I don't think that you're going to be taking away lighting designers jobs. Right. And I, and no, I think, frankly, you're actually going to create more and you're going to make yeah. them and you're going to make them better at what they do because right. they're going to become more profitable. So, you know, the argument is like, well, automation may take away jobs. And, and I would say like, well, the usually automation will always go for the lowest hanging fruit, which is the stuff that people kind of do day in and day out. And isn't that interesting? So as an example, laying out a warehouse, how many times do you want to lay out a warehouse? Oh yeah, all day long. All day long. Yeah, same parking um, lot over and over. Same parking lot over and over again. No, no one wants to do any of this stuff. Well, it is fun and I think it's good to do a couple of times. You know, I, I used to enjoy the puzzle aspect of trying to get like, you know, high- Perfect uniformity. Yeah, perfect uniformity in, in, in parking lots because they can be different shapes and you know, you got your different optic types and stuff like that. So that's an interesting challenge. But warehouses and open offices and stuff like this are- you know, if you're just going for general, broad, kind of decent uniformity, it's really cookie cutter. And so I don't think that that that's all that interesting. And so by utilizing tools, like we already utilize calculation engines, nobody does calculations by hand. I'd argue that a lot of people that do calculations maybe don't even understand how they're doing calculations, right? They just hit, they, they, they set hit it up go. and they hit go. Yeah. And they print it out and it's it's in a documentation that says, like, I verified that this is supposed to be this light level, right? And so we use that as a productivity enhancer already. So I think thinking about aspects of calculation, lighting calculation tools that can help, that can even do more of that automation is a good thing. It will allow us to, as an example, spend, I don't, I don't see a lot of engineers um, in 
right now that are able to spend the time to think about conceptually what's going on because there's so much work to be done. They're so slammed to get a bunch of work out and complete the job, you know, and they're generally tied on fees and, and stuff like that in time, you know, deadlines are fast. So I think those tools are a necessary thing that we need to embrace and improve upon. I mean, that's what it all comes down to, right? The There's a certain fee that is applied to a construction project. It's interpreted one of many ways. It's sold thousands of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's people coordinating and putting some form of documentation together that's then handed over to another set of humans that build buildings. We're not just going to come up with five times as much money in the world to do that process. What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to figure out how to more effectively use our time and at the same time, do cooler stuff. Yeah. Succinctly, spend more time on the cool stuff and less time on the the mundane. So make sure that that kind of art design that you're working on or the, as an example, the circadian rhythm influence in an open office, like people will be able to look at the more complex aspects of lighting design because they won't be spending as much time on the simple aspects of lighting design. Technology, technology, technology. Have I recapped that enough in this recap? Goes without saying, uh, we've been in a, a manual world. Uh, a lot of this industry literally could still be done if all we had was a fax machine. So it's, it's time to pick up and I think uh, move ourselves down the road a little bit. Speaking of moving ourselves down the road a little bit, we need to move ourselves down the road more than a little bit when it comes to sustainability. Rounding out our top five of the year was an incredible, incredible conversation with Jane White. If you don't know Jane, she's the president of Fine Light, but chances are you do. She's been there forever. She's held almost every position at that company over time. And she really is a a leader for our entire industry. She was a part of our documentary earlier this year called The Time Is Now, which talks about sustainability and how it's on the rise. But along with that documentary, uh, she sat down and recorded a podcast with us. She really just dove into what it means to be a sustainable manufacturer. The first thing that Jane and I talked about is the kind of support that manufacturers who are committed to sustainability need from the community, what they need at different stages of their process, from vendors to designers to everything in between. So I think there's support needed early in the process and later in the process. And by that, I mean, we need the other makers, the people who make things for us to understand and take this seriously. Um, That was one of the hardest parts of getting all of the information for the transparency effort that we put together is the people we buy things from were either hesitant or weren't focused on getting us the information we needed to be able to make decisions and understand what's going in our products. So Making that a priority, whether it is somebody who's making paint for the fixtures or making components for the fixtures or even making fasteners for the fixtures, being thoughtful about where you make it, how you make it, and what it is made of. And we are starting to have those conversations with our vendors. We've always done that when it's been just a fine light initiative, such as 10 working days. You know, all of our products ship 10 days after they're ordered. And we had to convince all of our vendors to say, hey, we got this great idea. Are you in? And this is what we need from you in order to do that. And after they, you know, stopped telling us we were crazy, they leaned in. Well, we need a bigger leaning in because this isn't just about fine light. This is about all of these people who make the components supporting the entire industry with transparent materials. The owners and primarily the design community who acts on behalf of the owner. What sort of support do you need from those two entities in order to make your mission to be a sustainable manufacturer, something that is no longer a dream, but a realistic goal, expectation, and something that you can achieve? Well, I think we're looking for people to prioritize it when they're making choices about lighting fixtures. And we don't see it as limiting. And we we think most manufacturers could meet a base level of sustainable manufacturing, sustainable materials, sustainable approaches. So this isn't a competitive advantage where Fine Light's the only one who does it. We want to bring the rest of the industry Long, and we need designers to prioritize it. If you remember with the LED evolution 
uh, you know, revolutions come and go. Evolutions stick around. And so that's why I refer to the LED as an evolution. You know, a lot of the designers were very hesitant in the beginning to go along with this change. It takes usually 10 to 15 years for a a change in paradigm in the lighting industry in terms of light source. But they were pressured by building owners and saying, hey, this is here now. I read about it in the Wall Street Journal. Why aren't you using LED on my light fixtures or my project? And that sort of forced a call to action where some manufacturers came up faster than others. I think we're in that same situation now that if we have owners saying, this is the commitment I'm making to the environment and my building and the people who live in it, and I'm counting on designers to support this vision, then that's going to encourage more than just one or two companies taking this as a priority. Then we talked about the different things manufacturers need to consider when they take on the term sustainability. It can really mean so many things to so many different people. And kind of starting to center what it really means is an important part of us moving forward as an industry collectively. Yeah, I think it's, again, the fixture itself has to stand for itself as a sustainable element. It's got to be energy efficient. It's got to have a long life. It's got to have replaceable components. It's got to be Rojas, you know, compliant. There's just some basic things that need to be built into the fixture. And for the most part, I think the industry is there, or at least there are a ton of choices along those lines. It wasn't all the, always the case. LEDs in their initial form faded off into darkness after about nine months. And it took a lot of engineering and time and focus to figure out how to really manifest the potential long life of LEDs. So that was a lot of work on a lot of people's part. But then it goes into what you put into your fixture. And that's where the environmental product declaration and these various programs to understand the actual impact the product has. And we, we're starting the journey with those right now. We're working with PNNL on a program, and we're working with the Greenlight Alliance, who are both trying to take leadership positions in creating a pathway for all manufacturers in the U.S. to um, have an EPD or be able to create an EPD for that's meaningful for their product line. Europe is farther ahead. In, in the U.S., there really isn't that easy button <laughs> yet. Um, but if we can come up with a pathway that can apply to um, our industry and the way we're making things here, then I think we can get more manufacturers to invest. And we kind of see the EPD also as a journey, that you do your, your you do the research, and, and it is what it is in terms of the product details and what the product impact is going to be. And that's your starting point for making it better. That you're going to you're going to see where the weaknesses are. You're going to see where the value of investment to make that declaration even more important and impactful in a positive way. And so this is to me that's not the end of the journey. That's also the beginning of of, of making a bet a product better every time you think about it or you have an engineer design something that addresses one of the weaknesses in the EPD. Next, we tackled the topic of misconceptions. You know, people think, oh, it's expensive. Oh, it's hard to do. Well, Jane had an interesting take on that. Well, I think the biggest is just what you said, that it's sustainable manufacturing is more expensive. It's just not true. In fact, if you invest the time to, say, just reduce the weight of your fixture, you know, by some percentage point, you're saving money and material there. You've got to invest the time. It's the research. It's the focus. It's the vetting of vendors. That is what's cost driven because you're putting an expensive resource to do that work. But the actual end result isn't much more expensive. In fact, it could be cheaper. It could literally be cheaper. Yeah. Would it look any different? Would anyone know? I don't think so. I think if you, I mean, again, that's where the R&D comes in. The vision of taking recycled plastics and making a diffuser out of them. I do not know at this point in time, if we use that approach, whether that's going to have the same characteristics and performance as a traditional version acrylic diffuser. But I want to find out. And are there things what we can do? I mean, you've got to push the envelope. If it's not possible now, you just have to find the people who are willing to go on the same journey with you from an experimental standpoint. A vendor is like, yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, let's see what we can do. You might fail there and have to go somewhere else. But that trial and error is how you build the knowledge you need to be able to make it a better luminaire. And what 
can this industry do to start to clear these hurdles together? I think it's undoubtedly one company can't do it. And and finally, it's part of a bigger concern. We're part of Legrand. And as a European-owned company, they're more passionate about it than even we are because they're further down the road. They have things written into their corporate social responsibility metrics about what they're expecting us to do that are kind of even stretch goals from my perspective, but they are taking it dead seriously. And so all of the large companies, whether it is you know a, a conglomerate or an independent, needs to equally come up with a strategy and then We have to bring everybody along. Lighting, even if I got everybody in lighting on board to do this thing, we need the owners, we need the general contractors, the electrical contractors, and the and the agents as well to be on board with this process and this goal and to support it as a team. And when everybody supports it as a team, it's the phrase that I think has been used in the first two, your, our third podcast here mm-hmm. on, around the sustainable conversation, a rising tide lifts all ships. Jane and I wrapped up our conversation by talking about what's on the horizon and what fine light's looking at next. Uh, goes without saying, you know, got to put your money where your mouth is. And they are committed to this. She had some insights for us that were definitely uh, something I personally am looking forward to. Other than engaging the entire team in the mission, we are approaching it multi-pronged. We're looking at the materials themselves. You know, what can we, we use miles of gasket? you know, that will probably still be on earth, unfortunately, long after we are gone. And can we still have a good gasket that does all the things you need it to do in a light fixture, but made out of organic material? So we're frankly kind of looking at other kinds of materials for housings. I don't know whether they'll pan out, but this is what we're doing right now is massive research, both in the appropriate documentation and the appropriate um, you know, types of materials that we can use on the product itself. And then the other things we're gonna be looking at is you know, how can we have relationships with vendors, again, evaluating our vendors and coming up with a checklist of how we expect them to behave, not only from the materials they're providing to us and what those are made of, but how they're treating their employees and whether they're they're meeting a, a standard of responsibility toward sustainable living. There's lots of ways to get cheap parts, but usually uh, they're not made of really healthy materials and their employees are not necessarily treated in the best way either. So you have to have that evaluation. And, and again, I think we should all be doing this. You know, responsible sourcing is, I think, a, a industry commitment that we need to fulfill, especially coming out of COVID. We want to make sure that we're choosing the partners that share our values in that way. And that rounds out our top five conversations of the year, straight from all 22 episodes that we not only were able to record and publish this year. The LightPod up till this point, it's been sponsored, funded, and created by Lana. But the good news is in 2023, there's an opportunity for you, the entire community, to get involved, to support us in what we're doing here. If you'd be interested in sponsoring an episode and collaborating and bringing a mini-series to life, reach out to us. Let us know. Lighteye, we've had one amazing year. An amazing year of being inspired by you, the listeners, everybody who engages with us, who follows along, and gives us ideas on what we can create, which is timeless and inspirational content. The good news is, though, We're gearing up. We're gearing up for 2023, and we've actually got some great guests lined up already for the month of January and February. We're going to try a few new tricks, too. We're collaborating with a lighting designer on a very cool, interesting series that I can't tell you too much about yet, but I promise you'll hear more about it, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, If you want to help us out, like I said, do me a favor and hop over to LightEye. We've got a survey on our podcast page. Uh, Fill it out. Let us know what you'd like to hear more about. Let us know who we can go interview. Let us know who you think needs to be sitting at this table to tell their story, to be inspirational, to uh, provoke some thought, to help usher in change and keep developing the future of the lighting industry. And one last thing. I really got to ask you this as a personal favor. If you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy the work that we're doing here, help me achieve our goals next year. We want to 
grow the voice of lighting overall. Uh, this platform is here to do it. It's here to not only share stories, but for you to then take around and share with your friends, your peers, people you work for, and let them know, hey, here's some insights. On behalf of the entire team here at Lightite, myself, Sarah, G, and Batty, thank you so much for being on a journey with us this year. A journey to find the stories that are important. A journey to find the stories that are different, that are thought-provoking and inspirational, and encouraging us to document them in a way that's timeless, in a way that can live on. You know, we believe in doing things right. We believe in doing things the best way we can, and we believe in being professional about it the entire time. It's not to say Lada isn't all about having fun. I mean, let's face it, if you're not having fun, you're not doing our job. And we've really enjoyed the opportunity to support you, the entire community. As we look forward to 2023, we are literally going to focus all of our time and energy as a collective house at Lodi on the community, telling your stories. So if you wanna be a part of it, if you wanna sponsor it, if you wanna be a part of the voice, the leadership of lighting, reach out. It would be great to chat with you. Drop me a line, sam at lighteye.com, or you know what to do, slide into those DMs on Instagram. Take care of yourself. I'll talk to you soon. See ya. Oh, wait, you didn't think I was going to leave you hanging just like that, did you? Happy New Year, too! Get after it. And by the way, if you haven't taken a break yet, uh, here's your reminder. Go take a break. Work will always be there. Talk to you soon.